Now, if you go back to verse 7 of Daniel 7 for a moment, you'll notice that Daniel says, after this, I kept looking in the night visions. And, of course, nighttime is especially, I guess it magnifies stuff like this, right? You know, if you, have, if you wake up from a nap and it's a daytime nap and you kind of have a, a scary dream, it's one thing. But if it's in the middle of the night, isn't it a little different? It's a little bit more weird, spooky, perhaps. He says, behold, a fourth beast. And this is um, the dominant beast of this chapter is the fourth one and a kingdom that emerges from the fourth beast. And that beast was dreadful, terrifying, and extremely strong. Now, the other beasts, remember, were regular animals, but this beast has large iron teeth. It connects to the iron legs in uh, Daniel 2. It devoured, it crushed, it trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts or empires mentioned prior to it that were before it. And it had ten horns. Now, many have done studies historically on whether you could find a ten-horn kind of connection to the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great and how that kind of devolved, and even in the Roman Empire. And I think it's a grasping really at straws to find a symmetry there because I do believe that what we're seeing is from Daniel 2 to Daniel 7 is we're seeing something that's going to be there at the end of the age. And we see a connection here, which I want to remind you of, which is important to see in terms of the timing of these things. Notice in verse 9. Let me get a little bit of water because I already feel my throat going. He says, I kept looking until thrones were set up in the Ancient of Days. We believe here the Father took his seat. His vesture was like white snow the hair of his head like pure wool. Some of you will remember Revelation 1.14, similar descriptions of Jesus because they share divine attributes. Yet you're going to see a distinction in the persons, but a similarity in descriptions of their nature or their glory because we do believe in a triune God. And so his vesture like white snow, hair of his head like pure wool. You can write down Revelation 1.14. His throne was ablaze with flames and its wheels were burning, were a burning fire. If you're interested in looking at a parallel passage, I won't go there tonight. It's found in Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 13 through 21, where when Ezekiel sees the throne of God, he sees wheels and fire and these mysterious movements of uh, what's going on there. It's a very intriguing passage and it has some connection to uh, verse 9 of Daniel 7. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, before the Lord. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. There's other descriptions in other passages that speak of angels who attend the Lord. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat. The books were opened. Now, in order to to anchor ourselves in a historical timeline, we do know that at the end of the age... Uh, the books will be opened. And uh, this is Revelation 20. This is verses 12 through 15. It says, I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. 
Now it goes on to say, the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. They were judged, everyone according to their deeds. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, sad, but here it is, he was cast into the lake of fire. So you can see at the end of things, at the end of the book of Revelation, there's similar language to Daniel 7 which tells us that this is taking us all the way to the end. Notice in Daniel 7.10, it says, The court sat, after God is uh, described here in similar language to Revelation 1 and even Revelation 4 and 5, the court sat, look at the end of verse 10, the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words, thank you, which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain. Its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed time. So we have identified the horn, the arrogance of the Antichrist. You can go back and listen to last week's message if you missed that. And I kept looking, and we pointed out that sometimes when we're reading tough stuff, we're going through tough times, we need to keep looking. And in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days. So notice he's distinct from the one seated on the throne. And he was pre presented before him. Now if I just asked you for a moment to tell me who you know described himself as the son of man in the Bible, you might come up with two answers. One is Ezekiel seemed to describe himself that way. And Jesus used the title for himself some 69 times in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 69 times. In fact, to my recollection, you can go back and check me on this, I think he only described himself as the Messiah once from his lips. And that's in the book of John, chapter 4, in interaction with the Samaritan woman. But other than that, over and over again, Jesus identifies himself as the Son of Man, directly quoting or taking us back to Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So if you want to understand the title that Jesus uh, appeals to the most as you study your Bible, it's this one, and it's from this place. One like the Son of Man was coming. He came up to the Ancient of Days. Would you notice in verse 13, he was coming with what? The clouds of heaven. He's described as the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. Uh, James Boyce comments, he says, There are many titles for Jesus in the New Testament. He is called Lord, Christ or Messiah, the Good Shepherd, the Bridegroom. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. Many titles of God the Father are given uh, to him. He's the Great I Am. But Jesus never used these titles for himself. Others gave them to him. He did not even use the word Messiah except for John 4.26. The only biblical title uh, Jesus did use, says Boyce, and that almost exclusively was the title of the Son of Man. Let me repeat it. 69 times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and 12 times in John. That's over 80 times in the New Testament that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Do you find that significant? I do. And I think he's saying something about who he is for anybody who's ever studied the Bible, anybody who's ever cracked open the book of Daniel and was willing to read beyond chapter 6, 
which we talked about last week, is sometimes hard for people to do. All right, I read about the lion's den. I'm cool. I'm good. I'm going to move to another book now. But anybody who's looked at the prophetic sections of Daniel and seen this Son of Man revealed in the Old Testament some 500 years before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem would see and know the connection when Jesus continues to call himself the Son of Man. In Luke 18.8, for example, Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Good question, isn't it? I want to show you just a few things in your New Testament before we continue in Daniel. Go to John 3 for a second. I just want to show you a few places that are very important that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. So, for example, his title, Son of Man, speaks of his pre-existence. He he existed before Bethlehem, before he was born in Bethlehem, obviously, if he's in Daniel 7 here. And it speaks of his suffering and his saving power. This is John 3, look at verse 13. He says, Jesus speaking, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven. That's Jesus' origin, even the Son of Man, John 3, 13. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. You need to know who the Son of Man is. Turn over to John 6. Look at verse 53 and 54. An often misunderstood and misinterpreted section. Jesus is not speaking about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's using a picture about taking him in into your life, being born again, believing in him. And he says in John 6, 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. This is what's at stake to know the Son of Man, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus speaks of final judgment in John 5. Look at verse 24. And this relates, of course, directly to what we see in Daniel 7 when he says, John 5, 24, Truly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. Notice he calls himself the Son of God there. And those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son to have life in himself. And he gave him authority, think of Daniel 7, to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Think of the end of the age. Those who did the good deeds, think of the books open to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil or the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. In Matthew 24, here's the other one. There's many I could show you, but this is Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus' sermon about his return given from the Mount of Olives. This is Matthew 24. Look at verse 29. Matthew 24, 29 says, Jesus speaking, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man, Matthew 24, 30, will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on what? Coming on the clouds 
of the sky with power and great glory. Now, those are not rain clouds. I think all scholars would agree those are the glory, Shekinah glory clouds that kind of is like the cloud that descended upon the children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings or hovered over the tabernacle and temple. And he, the Son of Man, will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together, the angels will, his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Flip over to Matthew 26, just the next chapter. Here's Jesus. He's being tried unjustly, illegally. Matthew 26, 63 says. The high priest, go back to 62, said to him, do you make no answer? What is, what is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. The high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you shall see, who? The Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now if you're... If you know your Bible at all and you're the high priest or you're part of the council, what are you referring to? Daniel 7. What's he saying? He's the son of man in Daniel 7. He's the Messiah. He is divine. And of course the response is telling. The high priest tore his robes saying, he is blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What are they saying? They're saying that Jesus has just said he's God, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of Man from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. What more do we need? We got him to admit it, if you will. Well, Jesus wasn't really hiding it. Of course, his miracles bore witness to who he was. Back to Daniel. And so we see the throne. We see the timing is interesting as you try to navigate, if you've been studying and reading through some of the commentaries on Daniel... And you see the different views and you see the different scholars wrestle with it. You have to see that the return of Jesus Christ is in the midst of these descriptions of this last beast. So it gives you an indication of the timing, doesn't it? Of all that we may not know, here's what we do know. This dream, these visions that Daniel sees are in a last day's context. They are in a context of the return or second coming of Jesus. And by virtue of that, they're yet future to us. At least this aspect is. Everybody with me? So for all that we might struggle with interpreting, here's what we do know. Jesus is coming with the clouds. He's identified himself as the Son of Man, verse 13. He's presented before the Father or the Ancient of Days. And to him, Daniel 7, 14, to the Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language, no exception, might serve him. NIV says might worship him. This is an Aramaic word because remember, we're from Daniel 2, moving through Daniel 7, it switched from Hebrew to Aramaic, and then we'll move back to Hebrew. So the word serve, if you have a New American Standard, is translated worship in the NIV because the word, if you look it up, can mean either. If you want the word, it's pelak, P-E-L-A-C. It means to serve, worship, revere, or minister, or serve. And so Jesus Christ is going to have people from every tribe, tongue, and nation serving him, which we see in Revelation. His dominion is how long? 
It's an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom, unlike these other kingdoms, will never be destroyed. And all God's people said, praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Our God reigns. What's the point, Daniel? Here's the point. Babylon seems so strong. Maybe Medo-Persia seems so strong. Greece, Rome, and this final world empire is going to be dreadful, terrible, a crushing machine. Even, we're going to see, making war with the saints at least for a time and prevailing. However, our God reigns. And Jesus Christ is going to destroy this final beast with the glory of his coming, with the breath of his mouth, the, the glory of his coming, as we read in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. And you are part of that kingdom. And so if you happen to be here in those last days, here's what you need to know. You need to know that Jesus is coming. People get ready. Jesus is coming. Soon we'll be going home. But these are the events that Jesus said you are to look for to know that his coming is near. You will see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. That's in Matthew 24, 15. And so in many ways, Daniel 7, 13, and 14 is a vision of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Here he's called the Son of Man. And it's a vision of his second coming and his coronation as the ultimate King of kings and Lord of lords. Here's when he takes the kingdom, if you will, and begins to reign Revelation eleven fifteen. Here's where he will make all that has been wrong right. Here's where, where every knee will bow, including yours, by the way. If you're a person listening to this message and you're not a believer yet, your knee is going to bow. Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen? Amen. To the glory of God the Father. And so... Good that you would bow now, <laughs> amen, instead of having to bow later. Now, what's Daniel's response to these visions? Some people might say, man, Daniel had to be freaked out. He had to be intrigued. He had to say, man, prophecy, eschatology, yeah. But you know what Daniel did? Daniel said, verse 15, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. He wasn't so much intrigued as he was alarmed, although he's intrigued about the last beast and he's going to specifically ask about it. I mention this in verse 15 because some of you will walk out of here alarmed tonight. And if you do, and many of you walk out alarmed after my sermons, I understand that. <laughs> Just know that you're in good company if, if you leave that way tonight. Daniel says, I approached one of those who were standing, standing by generally would be considered an angel here, and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this, wouldn't you? I mean, if you had a shot to ask somebody who was shiny hanging around, what does all this mean? That's what I'd like to know. What's the meaning of all this? And so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, 17, which are four in number, and we've studied those, are four kings, here's the interpretation, who will rise from the earth or the sea of humanity in verse three. But the saints of the highest one, that's God's people, will receive, they won't usher in the kingdom, they'll receive the kingdom in God's time, God's way, and possess the kingdom forever 
for all ages to come. Did everybody read that? How long is the kingdom of God going to last? Forever. These kingdoms that look so mightily, mighty, whether they're Babylon or Rome, or if you were living in the time when Nazi Germany was on the rise and trying to take a stand, maybe you were part of a, a nation that was attacked and it looked like things were very bleak. Well, the kingdom of the highest one will last forever. You see, we will reign with him forever and ever. On this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. The Lord God will wipe tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That's Isaiah 25, 7 through 9. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, this scary one that wasn't like any other animal, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze. We get a little bit more detail. It had claws of bronze and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. You can imagine what Daniel saw, just like when John saw the Revelation, the last book of our Bible, and how many weird, freaky images he saw and tried to maybe interpret through the lens of his time. Well, Daniel's seeing the same. And so he sees the claws of bronze which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head... The other horn which came up, that little one we saw earlier, and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. Okay, so up on the screen, here's the seven empires. Remember that on the, in the last box that you have there, um, let's see if I can get the light to go up there. Uh, it's not working. Anyway, uh, the last box on the right, upper right. The following empires came against Israel while in their land, Daniel's time and future. So we moved from Egypt and Assyria to Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. Let's see if I can get this to switch. Are you doing it? Okay. Oh, I need to point it over there. Thank you. Okay, we talked about Rome. Um, this is a verse to write down. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but you can go and look up this message on the website. Um, it's talking about the end times and how these uh, seven kingdoms line up with Revelation 17, 10, and 11. So that's something just for your review. I'm going to skip that quote. The characteristics of this coming world kingdom... Um, the fourth kingdom has a second phase. We talked about a revived Roman Empire... The ten toes have a connection to the ten horns. Okay, they'll be ruling at the time of the return of Christ, which we saw in Daniel 7, 13, and 14. And we see the connection between the statue and its feet and the Ancient of Days setting up an everlasting kingdom, that rock that crushes the statue and then the everlasting kingdom that's set up. This is what I wanted to especially put up for those of you who I said... I would try to give this to you. This is the seven things I gave you last week. These are going to be the aspects of the final kingdom. Seven points. There are going to be ten kings ruling at this time. 
They will at a given point choose one man to rule over them. This is Revelation 17, 13. Number three, it will be a kingdom at war with the Lamb, Revelation 17, 14, but will be destroyed by him. Number four, he, the Antichrist, will have world dominion. He'll be a dictator over the entire world, Revelation 13, 7. His rule, number five, will include fierce persecution of the saints. There's the verses. It will consist of a religious system, a one-world religious system, mandatory worship, or you die. You take the mark. You can't buy or sell. You got to have the mark or you're in trouble. And a one-world economic system that goes with the mark of the beast. Okay, Those, I'm going to leave that up there for you guys. But if you take notes while I'm talking, it will be hard to do both. But anyway, I'll leave that up for you um, so you have it because I think it's important for you to understand. In verse 20... The Antichrist pictured here is uttering great boast, and he's blaspheming God. And I kept looking, 21, at that horn, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. So there's going to be a time when this beast wages war with God's people. Who are these people at this time he's waging war with? Well, we know it's going to be Israel. And we know it's going to be the saints. We just ask the question, which saints? Tribulation saints? <laughs> Hopefully saints that don't include moi, right? None of us have a, a martyr's complex, right? Hopefully the pre-tribulation rapture view is correct. <laughs> because if it is, <laughs> if I had a vote, I'm voting for that. But as you know, I don't hold that view. But... This is, there's room for debate. But he's going to make war with the saints and overpower them until, keyword 22, the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints. Now, notice there's a coming here and a mention of the Ancient of Days, which is an interesting link to what we saw in 7, 13, and 14 to Jesus' coming. And judgment was passed in favor of the saints, of the highest one, of God. He's the most high. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. So when that time comes, the Lord is going to judge this final world empire, destroy its leader, cast him into the lake of fire, and give the kingdom to his people. And we will enter into a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. We call the millennial reign of Jesus. And we will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And that's when we see all the beauty of that golden age and peace in all my holy mountain. Let me just show you a highlight of that. Revelation 22, last chapter of your Bible. Revelation 22, this is so beautiful. And I think we need to remind ourselves over and over of what's ahead, especially in light of what we go through. Uh, the losses that we suffer, the difficulties that we face. Revelation 22, 1 says, And he showed me, says John, a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There's no fire for God's people. There's just the beauty of living waters. In the middle of its street, Revelation 22, 2 of the New Jerusalem here, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves 
of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse. See, this is why we die, because we're under a curse right now. And the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and there shall, they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them. And they shall reign, what's your Bible say? Forever and ever. And he said to me, because these words often seem too good to be true, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must shortly take place or the things that will move rapidly once they commence. And so you can see in in verse 20 of the same chapter, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly, amen, our cry, come Lord Jesus. And then he ends it with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. Back to Daniel 7 and we'll finish it. And so this fourth beast continues to be intriguing and terrifying to Daniel. And Daniel 7.23 says, Thus he said, The fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. It will be a ferocious anti-God movement. I was listening to KKLA over last weekend, and um, I'm trying to remember the the host's name, but he, he was talking about uh, church planting in Cuba. And uh, there's a story, and it's anecdotal, so you can take it for what it's worth. You check it out on Snopes, and you'll get different opinions as whether it's real or not. But here's what they say happened. Either as the military entered into a classroom in Cuba, or a teacher did this, and maybe both. What they did is they had the kids pray and ask God for candy and open up their hands and say, God, please give me candy, and nothing was in their hands. And then they said, ask Castro for candy. And they put out their hands and candy was dropped into the kids' hands. Which is a way of saying there is no God. Castro's your God. Your government's your God. You see, God can't provide for you what you really need. What you really need is a good government to give you all of your goodies. So we live in a world today that has largely moved that way, right? How many nations do we see that under socialism, have moved that way where the government is the answer to everything. And many times those governments are anti-God. They have to be atheistic to have their government structure work. So I know those of you who are watching the political world right now can see the connection to the United States. And what's being fed to our young people about the answers for our world and healthcare, and whatever else. But just watch out. Do a little bit more homework on socialism and see what it's produced in the world. Bread lines and ugly things. And so notice that the ten horns, out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. We, we, when we studied Revelation, and I've left that up there for you, you can see the connection as you study Revelation 13 and 17. Out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise. And this is why some see some sort of confederacy of nations, whether it's Europe or Islamic or whatever it is. And another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous one. 
and will subdue three kings. This is why this could be one of the markers that we may not talk about a lot, that there'll be some sort of confederation of nations and one will subdue three and take leadership. You can wrestle with that one, but that may be something to look for in terms of just the world news reports that pop up at this time. And he, this one that we've been looking at in the chapter and in Revelation, will speak out against the Most High. He will begin to blaspheme God. Second uh, Thessalonians 2 say, says that he will want to elevate himself ab- above every so-called God so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself as being God. Paul says, don't you remember when I was with you, I was telling you these things? That's why people are keeping an eye on Jerusalem, because they're saying if a temple arises, oh boy, fasten your seatbelt. Because the Antichrist apparently is going to go into a rebuilt temple, proclaiming that he's God, and by virtue of that wanting what? The worship and allegiance of the world. You say, is it really going to (laughs) happen? Yes. That's what the Bible teaches. And notice, he is going to, this one is going to blaspheme God. So anybody who serves God, of course, is going to be, uh, you know, within his scope. Wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law. And they, the saints, in context, will be given into his hand, the Antichrist, for a time, times, and a half a time. Can I save you a lot of study time? Just write in your Bible, three and a half years. (laughs) Because I think, as you cross-reference to Daniel 9.27, which is ahead of us, Daniel 12.7, Revelation 11.2 and 3, and 13.5, I'll say it one more time, Daniel 9.27, 12.7, Revelation 11.2 and 3, and Revelation 13.5, I think you'll find that there's a final seven-year period in two, three-and-a-half-year stents, if you will, and you can start to put the pieces of the puzzle together. How does the picture end up working out? Well, we're, we're seeing it pieced together, and that's why Daniel is so important in our study of uh, end times. And so they will be given into his hand, but for a certain segment of time, namely three and a half years. But the court will sit for judgment. His dominion, this last leader, will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. And whoever the saints are at that time, what do you think their prayer will be? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. In fact, the prayer that we've been taught to pray for some 2,000 years, how hard do you think people on the planet who know Jesus will be praying that prayer at that time? Consider the world conditions. Consider the time and say, you know what? We'll be praying for, for the king to come, who, whoever is here and whoever these saints are. Then the sovereignty, so this Antichrist will be annihilated, destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. 
Do you see over and over what Daniel comes back to? He says, hey, do you know something? If you're part of God's people, you are on the winning team. Ultimately, his kingdom is going to last forever and never be destroyed. And I belong to him and I will rule and reign with my Savior. And it's amazing to me to think that that's the privilege position that he's put me in. But that's what he's done for all of us. And so at this point, Daniel says, the revelation ended. You ever had one of those? As for me, Daniel says, my thoughts were greatly alarming me. My face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. ESV, I kept the matter in my heart. Sounds like he didn't reveal it to others right away. Uh, He pondered it, and he had a lot to think about. And I can't help but think of Mary when she was told about the coming of the Messiah and the shepherds come to the place that the child was born, and it says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And then in the temple scene... Or when Jesus says, didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house as they looked for him? He went down with them, Luke 2.51, came to Nazareth. He continued in subjection to them, and his mother treasured all these things in her heart. That's what Daniel did after that incredible vision in Daniel 7. He pondered these things in his heart. So let me just ask you, Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? Do you know for sure? Do you know how to get your name in that book? It's simple. You must trust in Jesus Christ as your King, as your Lord, as your Savior. And if you trust in Him, put your faith in His finished work, in His love for you, the fact that love and justice meet at the cross, and you say, Lord Jesus, I want to know you, I'm going to serve you, I want my name in the book of life. What's the opposite of a book of life? One day I called my sister and I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm having a bowl of life cereal. Or maybe I said it to her. And she said, better than a bowl of death. How many of you like life cereal? It's good, isn't it? Cinnamon life? Oh, yeah. In fact, I might go home and, I don't know. Anyway. Do you have life? You know, as a young Christian, I heard other Christians talking about the abundant life. Anybody else? And for a while, I was wondering what the abundant life was because I wasn't experiencing it. I had become a Christian, but I was battling my old ways, compromise, the flesh, the world, all that stuff, the devil. And it took a while until I realized what abundant life looked like. Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I'm I'm telling you this. Please always remember this. There's going to be a time that's coming to this world, and it may come to your life prior to all this end time stuff, where the world's kingdom and the devil's lie sounds much easier and much more attractive. Anybody? Sometimes it does. Let's face it. Sometimes, even after we've been a Christian for a long time, we go, man, it's not easy being a Christian. It's not easy swimming against the tide. It's not easy anchoring myself to these promises consistently and walking and doing what I'm supposed to do. But here's what Jesus said. 
I've come to give you abundant life. Have you forgotten what your life was like prior to coming to Jesus? Oh, yeah, well, some of it was all right. Yeah, for an hour or two, <laughs> right? If you're in the book of life, you have life, and that more abundantly. And that life is going to get better. The best is yet to come. Oh, we're going to have some bumps and tough sledding here in this world. Yeah, it's true. But we're part of an everlasting kingdom that's filled with life. And we have people in our world all around us, they're already dead in their, in their sins and trespasses. And you know what you have? Good news to share of life. And a lot of people that won't admit it to you, that you work with or are in your family, they need life and they'd like to know how to find it. And we have it to give away. Good news of great joy. Father, thank you so much for the book of Daniel. Thank you for this powerful chapter. Thank you for the precious people of God, the saints of the Most High, who, whose names are recorded in heaven. And I remember the apostles came back to you. They were excited because demons were even subject to them in your name. And you said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you in my name. Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And among the 12, there was a pretender. His name was Judas, and he didn't have life. He was a phony. He was a hypocrite. And the other 11, as imperfect as they were, as much as they fought and struggled and had their moments, they had life because you are life. And Lord, we just want to take a few moments here just to have some Selah time to think about what life really means. You are the bread of life, the water of life, the way, the truth, and the life. Life comes from you. You are the sustainer of life. You are the prince of life. And I thank you so much that you've imparted life to us. And that more abundantly, new life in Christ, born again to a living hope. If you're not a Christian, with your head and heart bowed, just cry out to him and just say, Lord, I want to know that life. I, I believe you came into this world and died on that cross for me. Though you were the king of heaven, you made that sacrifice. You, you became one of us. You became a man. Thank you that you suffered for me on that cross. Thank you that you defeated death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. I believe, I trust you. Maybe you've been a, a wanderer. Maybe you've been a prodigal. And, and the abundant life has not been your experience lately because you've been in compromise. Maybe you've been defeated. Maybe you've been just scared. How about you just say, Lord, just impart that life to me. I just want to be close to you again. And Lord, for the saints of the Most High God who are here just trying to fight the good fight and grow and anchor themselves in that one who is the true life, I pray that you'd bless them. Keep them. Let your blessed face shine upon them and give them strength and hope in every area of their lives. Permeate them with joy, the joy of the Spirit, the love of God, all that they need, Lord. Pour it out for them tonight, I pray. In Jesus' holy name, I pray.